a holiday season is uh, upon us. And as I thought through that, thought about our text for today, uh, a, a story of sorts came to my mind. Imagine a newly married couple celebrating their first Thanksgiving together in a small, barely furnished apartment, uh, establishing traditions of enjoying a large, festive meal together with friends and family. However, they're new to the area, they're far from family, so there are no friends yet. Uh, No family was able to join them. And their Thanksgiving turkey, because of their low income, looks more like a Cornish hen which is a pathetic meal, if you don't get that reference. We tried that once. It was like, really? It's like more bones than meat. For us personally, it wasn't worth it. Anyway, yet the couple loves every moment because they are looking forward to these traditions growing each year as their family grows. And then you fast forward maybe 10 years, and their table is full, full of children, full of friends, full of food. Uh, They give thanks to the Lord together with hearts that are overflowing for his many blessings to them. Very different Thanksgiving that year. But what if in another five or ten years they suffer some sort of devastating catastrophe? Um, Maybe it's a a house fire. Maybe it's the, the loss of a loved one. Or perhaps that year there is a terminal diagnosis for a family member. Maybe the husband or the wife, maybe even for one of the children. Uh, Perhaps he's lost his job. They've sold off their assets to pay for those hospital bills. And they're they're back to a Cornish hen for Thanksgiving dinner or maybe just deli turkey sandwiches. Friends have moved away and the table is empty once again. It's empty of food. It's empty of fellowship. uh, It's empty of happiness. Even if their table looked similar to their first Thanksgiving together, the situation is far more discouraging and disheartening. Isn't it? That which is supposed to be celebration, uh, surrounded, infused with so much grief and heartache, it's very discouraging, even the more so when they remember that which used to be. God instituted annual feasts for his people to celebrate together each year. goes through these in Leviticus. One of these feasts, the last of them on the calendar year, was the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths, Feast of Tents. It took place in the fall, in the seventh month of the year, soon after the Day of Atonement. This feast was instituted in Leviticus. If you know the history of the people of God, um, they aren't in the Promised Land. They're in Sinai, like fresh out of the Red Sea, like not much has happened. And yet God's saying, when you get to the land, when you're settled, when you have all these crops, When there's a temple, you're going to come together and you're going to celebrate for a week and you're going to live in tents. Won't that be crazy to live in tents outside the city for a week? Do you know what the people lived in when they got that word from the Lord? They lived in tents, right? But but you won't, but then you're going to do it again. It's kind of one of like the irony of camping. We love camping. And as has been said, like the oddness of camping is that you pay a ton of money to pretend that you're homeless, for, for a week or so, uh, which, which we enjoy. Uh, we have a camper now, so it's less like being homeless. But either way, uh, you will live in homes, houses. You will live in cities, but you're going to pretend that you don't. You're going to come to Jerusalem. You're going to live in these booths and these tents. All of you are supposed to do this for a week to celebrate what God did. And you're going to bring in the excess of your harvests. It's going to be amazing. So then we fast forward a few hundred years from the giving of that in the law to the dedication of Solomon's temple. We've talked about that a couple different times. First Kings chapter eight, for example. I'm not gonna turn there. You can look at that. An incredible time. I mean, Solomon's whole reign is defined by peace. David's, there was a lot of conquest happening. So now the city and the whole nation unified, having received almost the fullness, everything that God had promised them, almost, Living under a king of wisdom, godliness, building this extravagant temple, practically a wonder of the ancient world. A couple chapters after this dedication, like the queen of Sheba comes to visit and marvel at Solomon's wisdom and the wealth that was associated with his rule. And in that time, 
this dedication, uh, they start to lose track, lose count of things that were important to everybody else. It's like, well, how many, how, how rich was this kingdom? They're like, I don't even know how much silver we had. We just stopped counting it. Right? It's just so common, right? This wealth is just so common. We're not even counting it. Well, how many sacrifices were there? Like there's some poor scribe trying to keep track. He's like, I, I can't keep up with this. The text says that. They don't even know how many animals were sacrificed. Is this, this lavish, extravagant dedication service to the glory of God. And if we wonder if it was received well, it was because God's glory descends on the temple. The priests couldn't even go inside. I know I've referenced this already. We kind of have a picture in that mind. Do you know what month of the year Solomon's temple was dedicated? The seventh month of the year. Somewhere around the time where the Feast of Tabernacles would have fallen. And so everything that God had promised to his people, everything that they had looked forward to when they had been living in tents, kind of comes full circle. Maybe it was before, maybe it was after, but it was right around that same time, Day of Atonement, followed about a week later by this week-long Feast of Tabernacles, all of this celebration of all of God's promises, remember what God had done, falling in the seventh month. Do you think that God's people would have remembered that had taken place at that time? Yes, of course, And then, centuries later, God's people have been in exile. God's people have returned from exile. God's people have started rebuilding the temple. God's people stopped rebuilding the temple. God sent the prophet Haggai to call them to pursue God's priorities and rebuild the temple. The people respond in repentance. They begin rebuilding the temple. They start getting to work. And then they start looking around and they start thinking about the history of what had happened in the seventh month. And they begin thinking about the Feast of Tabernacles. Maybe they're probably at this point, if they're following the law, which I believe that they were, they're actually celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. The building would have been interrupted by the fact that they weren't allowed to do any work during this time. And in this holiday of holidays, with all of these emotional and and wonderful and monumental events all centering around the seventh month of the year, God's people are discouraged. Why are they discouraged? Because they're not living in the prosperity and blessing of God. And the temple that they're trying to build is not going to look anything like the temple that Solomon dedicated on the seventh month, right around these same feasts so long ago. One author brought this together. The celebration of the festival of tabernacles with its wilderness overtones would have been particularly poignant and meaningful for the remnant of the people described in Haggai because those taking part had themselves only recently experienced a second kind of exodus in their return from Babylon. The returnees saw themselves as a community recreating the days of Joshua entering into the land again. For them, the experience of dwelling as strangers and aliens in an unwelcoming world, being granted a fresh start in the land promised to Abraham was not simply something to be recalled from the dim and dusty pages of history, but was fresh in their minds. However, let's look at Haggai chapter 2 to see how the people feel and how God responds. Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 to 9. This is still in the second year of Darius the king, we read in Chapter 1, verse 15, and then in the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet... Now, be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. 
The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. This text begins with a discouraging comparison. The prophet, the first aspect of his message, calling the attention to these leaders and to the people themselves, he asks in verse 3, who is left among you who saw this house, the temple, right? Who, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Solomon's temple in all its glory covered with gold, every, like everywhere, like everywhere they could put something in gold, they, they put it. Right? There was no expense spared. And all of this, it's all the original furniture, it was resplendent with riches for the glory of God. And God was pleased with those things. And, and the furniture covered in gold and, and uh, remarkable craftsmanship, all those things, that included the Ark of the Covenant in the holiest of holies, the most holy place where the the throne of God, as it were, and his presence dwelt among his people. That piece of furniture specifically lost, never recovered. There is no ark, cannot be rebuilt, cannot be replaced. And even though this temple that they were building would be roughly the same in size, how could it possibly compare for glory or for splendor? And it didn't. It was as nothing in the people's eyes as nothing. How overwhelming, how discouraging it must have been to think back to what had been and to know with certainty that you could not match those results. As one author put it, the present realities to these people seemed depressingly mundane. What we're doing would never amount to what has been done in the past. When we look back at the history of the church from the book of Acts in the New Testament or throughout recorded church history, uh, we are drawn to and amazed at exciting times, like the Protestant Reformation. Today, October 31st, is Reformation Day. You might have thought it was just Halloween. Uh, It is, but you were wrong. It's also Reformation Day. 504 years ago, as was mentioned in a call to worship today, a German monk posted 95 theses or ideas that he wanted to discuss about practices that he questioned in the Roman Catholic Church. Just a small, formal discussion, no big deal, not the first of theses that were published by different people. Hey, let's talk about this. Uh, This was not, this was a lot more than he expected it to turn into. It was a spark that lit powder keg and blew up Europe and the world. Uh, The powder keg that became the Reformation, explosion that became the Reformation. And soon it became Martin Luther Contra Mundo, which is against the world. This one German monk stood toe-to-toe with the Pope and the Roman Catholic Church with with ecclesiastical and and political power that we really can't fathom uh, in our day. He stood toe-to-toe with them and he emerged victorious, changing the church, changing the world God's truth and the true gospel prevailed. Light shined after and out of darkness. We think about the Reformation and we remember John Calvin pastoring and preaching, writing commentaries, theological books we still read today and we still benefit greatly from. We give thanks for the English reformers like Wycliffe or Tyndale struggling and even dying to produce Bible translations in the English language, a heritage of which has so influenced our Bibles today that some of the phrases that you know and have memorized, places like Proverbs, actually were translated by those men 500, 600 years ago, 500, 500-ish years ago. Others like Latimer and Ridley being burned at the stake under the tyranny of bloody Queen Mary because of their faithfulness to the gospel and they would not recant or rescind. We could talk about brilliant thinkers like Jonathan Edwards, talk about the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, talk about George Mueller serving the fatherless in his orphanage work, talk about missionaries like David Brainerd to the American Indians, talk about Hudson Taylor, Uh, China Inland Mission, talking about Adoniram Judson or William Carey or Amy Carmichael or Jim Elliott. In the last hundred years, we could speak of of men like J. Gresham Machen, 
standing against unbelief, making a distinction between Christianity and the alternative of liberalism as a different religion. Talk about D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, talk about Billy Graham, talk about R.C. Sproul, talk about the ongoing ministries of John MacArthur or John Piper. Names are known and sermons are read and books are read around the world. Then there's us. A hundred or so people gathering weekly at Risen King Church in Hurricane, West Virginia. You thought about the fact that if our church were actually ever referenced in a history book that most everybody who read it wouldn't even pronounce our city right? (laughs) By comparison with what has taken place in the past, is our weekly gathering of our small body, is it not as nothing in our eyes? Compare it to Geneva or to Grace Community Church. Compare your preacher to any of those other men. Is this not as nothing in our eyes. See, there's always a comparison that could be made to leave us discouraged in our work. And Haggai begins by admitting this. The prophet of God giving God's message owns up to that. He says, look around. Any of you have heard of this? Any of you might have seen this when you were a small child 50, 60 some odd years ago? It's not much, is it? They're like, no, it's not much. He admits it, but then he moves on. He moves on to a familiar charge. Yes, there might be reasons for discouragement, but we must not allow them to rule our lives. There is still work to be done. So the command is, be strong, repeated three times. God had not told them to line the walls of his temple with gold. He had told them just to build. So they must build. In order to overcome the discouragement that they were facing, those staring at leftover rubble from the last 50, 60, 70 years and evaluating the monumental task ahead of them. I mean, in some sense, it's easier to build from scratch than it is to try to do something with this mess, but it had to be here. It was rebuild this house and this place. And so thinking about all that was ahead of them, Thinking about what was behind them, they needed to be strong. And he doesn't mean physically strong, right? Not like, guys, do some push-ups because these rocks are big, right? Those trees you're going to drag down, they're heavy. So bulk up. That's not what he's saying. He doesn't mean physically strong. He means spiritually strong. He means mentally strong, perhaps emotionally strong, we could say. Strong enough to keep working in the midst of discouragement and opposition, Strong enough to hold on to truth against lies and excuses. If you're a reader of of God's word, this language may remind you of another time when Joshua had a monumental task ahead of him. The looming shadow of comparison with Moses hanging over his head. Is leading God's people into the promised land. And how did God speak to Joshua? Joshua chapter 1 After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Later, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong. And courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or the left. You may have success, good success, wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. You shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous. Then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Three times God charged Joshua to be strong in the work that God had called him to. God also promised that he was with Joshua and would not leave him nor 
forsake him. So would that not have echoed in the minds and hearts of the people as they hear with a new work ahead of them, they would not hear these same words, be strong. And not only be strong, but you got to get to work and I'm with you. Really work for I am with you. Work because I am with you. God had said this to the people a few weeks earlier. I sought to emphasize it last week myself, but we need renewed assurance that God is with us and that God is for us weekly, daily, hourly, because of the work that's ahead of us. One of the frequent ways that God reassures us of his powerful presence with us and reassures us of his faithful love for us is to point us back to his works of redemption in the past. And that's what he does here as well. All sorts of people would do this in relationships. Like, oh, do you, do you love me? Like, will you be with me? It's like, well, what happened last time? Like, have I not? Like, will daddy take care of me? It's like, well, think about it. What about last month when you were scared? What about this other time when you fell? What about when this, that, that scary dog came after us in a walk? What happened? Oh, daddy took care of me. Yes, so... I will be with you, right? And that's obviously on, a, on an infinite level. God is saying that and pointing, him, pointing his people back to his works of redemption in the past. So the text doesn't just say work for I am with you, but we could say work for I am covenantally with you. And he draws that work, verse four, work for I am with you declares the Lord of hosts according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. It was so important for God's people to remember their history and how God had worked for them to redeem them from slavery in Egypt. They had to remember that as they were going forward in their work. They needed to remember the signs and the wonders. That's why so many times, do you remember? Do you remember how many Psalms go back? Did you guys remember what God did for you? They needed to remember their history, how God had worked for them to redeem them from slavery in Egypt. So again, the the signs, the wonders, the plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, as well as God's presence, the course of their entire wilderness wanderings in a pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night. They needed to remember how God himself had spoken to Moses and to the people, giving them his law at Mount Sinai. According to the covenant that I made with you when you left Egypt, bringing them to that place where God would, as we'll see a little bit later, would shake the earth to get their attention, to make an impact as he was making his covenant with them. See, anything that we do for God must be built on the foundation of what God has done for us. Every work that we do for God is a response to God working for us. We see that in a pattern, not going to take a lot of time for this, but even the giving of the Ten Commandments, it was, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Here's what I did, okay? You shall have no other gods before me, right? It wasn't like, he didn't say, here are my Ten Commandments. If you guys can follow these for a few generations, then I'll rescue you from Egypt, No, their work for God was a response to what God had done for them and in their midst. His redemption preceded their obedience, likewise, for us. And we, too, have a history of God with us working on our behalf and not merely delivering, what, a million and a half people from physical bondage to slavery. What God has done in our midst makes that look like nothing, not just physical slavery to Egypt. God has redeemed and rescued us from our spiritual slavery to sin by the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. The miracle and the marvel of which makes 10 plagues and the parting of a little sea look like nothing. You weigh the incarnation and the perfection of Jesus against the redemption in Egypt like, you give me those two tasks, I would take trying to figure out how to part the Red Sea. <laughs> what God has done for us, the person of Christ, makes everything else pale in comparison. And then freeing us from that slavery so that we can work to do that which is pleasing to him and brings him glory. We must remember our history of God's great works on behalf of his people. I am with you. Like I was with Moses, like I was with Joshua, I'm with you. And then he, the third aspect of his charge, he ends with fear not. 
They feared him before. It was understandable. It was even appropriate. And yet he brought his presence and his promises to bear. We talked about that last week as well. So this is why it's a familiar charge because he's really saying stuff to them that he's already said. He's reminding them a few weeks later when discouragement has set in on the work, he's renewing these things in their midst. He's saying, I think, don't live in fear of my disappointment with the glory of this temple as compared to Solomon's. And don't live in fear of the empires vying for power around you. Don't live in fear of your enemies who are opposing you. Do not fear. Instead, be strong and work. Be strong and work. And the final section of Haggai's message on this date was a future promise. Future promise from the mouth of the Lord of hosts, which you could also, by the way, footnote, uh, you could translate as Lord Sabaoth, we sang about. Um, connection between those things. Don't want you to miss that. A future promise made from the Lord of hosts to his people, verses 6 to 9. And we know this is a future promise because of the way God introduces it. You see verse 6, thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more, in a little while, I will right? Future tense, I will. It's always good to have a little grammar lesson in the midst of this. But this future promise, what I will do, is also rooted in the past, once more, as in like once again. So what God is going to do in the future, what he's promising to do, is also rooted in something. There's some aspect of similarity with something that he has already done in the past, right? Once more. What is God going to do? The future promise begins with him saying, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And then into verse seven, and I will shake all nations. God's future promise begins with this idea of shaking. Shaking, this idea appears 29 times in the Old Testament. And all but two of those are in reference to God's powerful terrifying judgment over his enemies. Right, like if you need a picture of this type of shaking, it's just like you, you hear the footsteps like thudding, right? And it kind of shakes. Like if you're, if you're hiding, you don't know who's in the house, it's those heavy boots falling through, right? I don't know if any of you are watching scary movies, but they can hear the thud of that. It's like, oh. Or the cup of water with the Tyrannosaurus Rex and Jurassic Park. That, that also gets the point across. Or it's like, I wonder if anybody's coming. What about this army, right? And, a, and a, a whole horde of horsemen coming out of city would shake the ground such that you could feel it. So that's that quaking. That's the shaking that would take place. Matter of fact, it's used a lot of times for that very reason. This army is coming and the whole ground, the whole land is going to shake with the presence of them coming. And so oftentimes it's either God marching himself and shaking everything, or it's God sending a human army or some other type of army. And the shaking of that is still a picture of God's presence. Sometimes the earth shakes or quakes because God himself is marching. Other times it's the human armies God is sending where the ground is thundering. And this isn't just like the gentle, wake up honey, time to wake up, right? This is like two shoulders, wake up. You got to get up. We're late for church. I know we live across the street. (laughs) Hypothetically. Thundering, quaking. Hear quake or shake. Think of earthquakes, right? Not a gentle one, but catastrophic. The New Testament borrows this concept to speak most frequently about the coming judgment of God as well. Occasionally, other things might shake a little bit, but really when shaking happens, biblically, it's God is shaking it. And this earthquake-like destruction that's unavoidable, it's of all creation and, and of all the nations. I mean, he couldn't make that clearer, could he? I will, I will shake the heavens and the earth. What parts of the earth? Oh, the sea and the dry land. Like, well, is there anything that doesn't fit in that? No, <laughs> there's not. It's everything, all of creation clearly being pointed to here. And, and the New Testament and the Old Testament refer to this as the day of the Lord. Both Testaments point to this coming judgment as the day of the Lord, the moment when God arrives to end it. 
the inescapable day of the Lord's revelation of himself, full power, full glory. Peter writes about this, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. He says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Shaking, right? Earthquakes and fires and destruction. Revelation 20 verse 11 points to this ultimate fulfillment of this as well with the result that from God's presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. Nothing will escape this. We see one day soon, God will act in judgment to shake all of creation and all of the nations on the earth, leaving them as nothing, be like rubble left after a devastating earthquake. It's God's future promise. I will shake. When? This is a, this is a little bit of a, not a hard one, and we need to wrestle with it. When does he say he's going to do this? Yeah, once more. Okay, yeah, going to happen again. In a little while. A little while? This has not happened yet, in case you're wondering. Right? Like our building still stands. Nations are still existing. So God has not shaken all of creation and all of the nations in judgment. And even if we stretch it out, can it really mean 2,500 years and counting? Can a little while mean that? And I would say yes. Yes, it can. Same passage from 2 Peter 3, Peter answers that same question. Scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, and they will say, where's the promise of his coming? Ever since the creation of the world, I'm sorry, ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Everything just continues. God doesn't interact with his creation. There's no judgment coming. And and Peter's like, have you never read about the flood? (laughs) You think everything's just continued? On a level, no, God has, God has shaken and once more, he's coming. And then what's his answer? Because they're, they're in essence, they're saying so many promises, so few results. It's an unbelieving response to God's promise and a, and a delay, a waiting to be fulfilled. But Peter continues, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So from one perspective, we could say it's only been about two and a half days since God made this promise. And that's certainly a little while. What is the result of this shaking? He goes on, he says, verse 7, I will shake all nations so that, with the result, that the treasures of all nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory. I will fill this house with glory. Not not Solomon will do it. Not, Not you will do it. I will do it. I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. See, the people were looking back in comparison to Solomon's temple, and they were discouraged that the glory of their temple, that rebuilding of this same house of the Lord, that that glory would not match the glory of Solomon's temple. And at that moment, and based off their own labors, they were right. Looking at that which they could accomplish in comparison to what had been accomplished in the past, it was as nothing. Not to worry God says, you're comparing in the wrong direction. You're looking back and comparing the lack of glory now to the presence of glory in the past. But in the future, God says, I will fill this house with with the greatest glory. You think now, not much glory. Then, a good amount of glory. But, But in the future... Glory that makes everything else pale in comparison. Verse 9, the latter glory of this house, that which will take place in the future, the latter glory of this house will be greater than the former. You're comparing backwards, but I'm, I'm looking forward to what I will do, and you need to do the same thing. And so what does this 
What does this look like? This, this shaking of the nations and their treasures, which is such a cool picture, kind of like God's not a bully, um, but you got to like the bully picking on, on the, the, the weak guy, right? You feel bad for the weak guy, the bully stealing his lunch money. Then you imagine like the, the bigger brother coming in and picking up the bully by his feet, like shaking his pockets out and all the lunch money comes out. I don't know, that's just the picture that comes to my mind with this. This is like, well, okay, these nations that have robbed you, just wait and watch what I'm going to do to them. I will take their glory, their riches, their treasures, and I'm going to bring it into my house. And so when, what is this? What is taking place? Has it taken place? Will it take place? What will it look like? And there's not really universal agreement among those who look at this passage. Exactly all that is taking place, like in this shaking of the nations and filling this house with glory. But a lot of times, many times, when you're looking at prophecies in the Old Testament, there are these stages of fulfillment. And it looks like there's one picture that's happening. But as time and revelation progresses, you actually see that it wasn't just one thing that was going to take place, but God was going to fulfill aspects and stages. A lot of times that happens. A near fulfillment, a far fulfillment. And the far fulfillment always points to who? Jesus. Okay? But, but there is near fulfillment as well. And so what was the near fulfillment? And it could be um, the Persian Empire representing the nations, leading the nations at that time, the Persian Empire contributed financial support for the building of the temple. So God worked so that the treasures of the nations would come and be part of his temple. Like, that's cool. And God did that. Like, that's not like maybe. Like, that did happen. And that kind of covers, in a sense, the treasures of the nations coming into that house, uh, but it doesn't really speak to the shaking, right? They did that willingly, it was part of God's plan, but, but God working providentially through like the willing actions of people who otherwise would have been opposed to him, like, he does that, and that's great. Uh, that's not really shaking, though, right? Like the bully kind of being like, hey, you know what? You should honestly give the lunch money back. And the bully's like, you know, that's right. Here's five bucks for lunch today. That's different than the whole like picking up and shaking, right? We see the difference between that. So it's just like that near fulfillment is like, oh, okay, but is that... Like, is that, that's it? That's the latter glory greater than the former. And then you look at that coming together and be like, no, it, it's really not. Like, if you compare temples side by side by way of glory and riches, like, no. Like, what they rebuilt, it doesn't match. So the ultimate fulfillment of this, as with so many promises, is found with Christ as we already saw, I hope that you caught what we were talking about, uh, at Christ's second coming, all of creation, all of the nations of earth will be shaken and destroyed, left as nothing before him. But do you know what was revealed to the Apostle John in Revelation 21? Revelation 21, shaking has taken place. Everything's been reduced to nothing. He sees the new heavens and he sees the new earth. A renewed, recreated, redeemed creation. And on this new earth, there will be a city, a city called the New Jerusalem. And among the many glories that John sees and struggles to describe for us, among other glories of the New Jerusalem, John saw, this Revelation 21 again, he saw this, by the light of the Lamb, Will the nations walk? And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. I'm going to shake heavens and earth. I'm going to shake all the nations, and from that rubble, I'm going to bring all the glory together to this place. You know, and it's not going to be the same as this place, but there's, why well, call it the new Jerusalem if there's not a connection to the old Jerusalem, right? There's not some aspect of that. Why would there be a new heavens and a new earth if it is not some connection to the old heavens and the old earth? That's why it's not a brand new creation. It's a recreation. 
right? And all of this pointing together like a stream to that which would take place in the final state where we don't float on clouds. We live on a new earth, right? In renewed bodies and a renewed planet. And it's not just Jewish. It's the people of God from all nations. So the temple was where God's presence dwelled in the midst of his people in the city of Jerusalem. It was to be a place of holy worship to the Lord, where offerings were given and God's glory was displayed and marveled at. That was the point of the tabernacles, the point of the temple. But that earthly building was just a shadow. It's why it could be done away with. Right? I read somewhere that it's like in the time of Haggai, even after that, right? God tells him to rebuild the temple. It's never going to be as glorious as it was from a physical standpoint, right? The kingdom, the monarchy would never recover in that way. And then eventually the whole temple is destroyed after the time of Christ by way of fulfillment of these things because this was great. It's like God is weaning his people off of so many of the physical things that only we're supposed to point them to something, Right? It's like you don't need all these tangible things because actually the promise is moving closer to fulfillment, which is greater than anything that was in the past. And so they, they were obsessed with so many, that we've got to have the temple, we've got to have sacrifices, got to have these things. Hebrews says all of that was about Jesus. And as Jesus said, we talked about a week or two ago, right? You're worshiping in spirit and in truth. It doesn't have to be in a building. It's actually going to cover the whole globe. So that was just a shadow. It was destined to be replaced in the age to come, which is why, as you continue reading in Revelation 21, in the new heavens, new earth, in the new Jerusalem, do you know what building is not there? There is no temple because you don't need to have a place that represents God's dwelling with his people because God is going to dwell with his people. So that, that image is fulfilled and then one day, all the treasures, all the glory of the nations described here in such paltry terms as silver and gold, like that's it, pointing to that which is valuable, that which is gloriously, glorious, excuse me, all the treasures and glory of the nations will be willingly offered to King Jesus by his followers from among all nations, great and small. That's the promise. That's what's going to happen. In the future, God conquers all of his enemies and his people, as it were, kind of like rise out of the ashes and bring all of the glory to Jesus forever. And in a sense, this has already begun. This isn't just something that's in the future, it's going to happen in the future. It's going to be fulfilled, but in a sense, this has already begun because God's dwelling place is no longer a building. There is no temple. There need not be a temple, physical structure. And you know why? Because God's dwelling, God's temple is not a place. It is a people. Where the new covenant people of God, the church being gathered from every nation is specifically called God's temple in Ephesians chapter 2 and in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul says it to do two different audiences. It's like, you get it, right? Like, God dwells in his world in you. And it's like, that would be such a cool fulfillment of Haggai 2. It's like, oh, he's talking about the church here. It's like, well, not Probably not. <laughs> but even if it's not the direct fulfillment of that, it certainly applies by implication at least, right? So I think the near fulfillment has to do maybe with those aspects of Persia and the far fulfillment is certainly what God will do in the new heavens and the new earth with that glory coming in once all things have been shaken. But when I read, I will fill this house with glory, with the treasures and glory of the nations, I can't help but hear an echo of Christ's promise, I will build my church. And the promise doesn't end with shaking. It doesn't end with the emptying of the nation's glory into the temple of the Lord. It actually, the promise uh, ends with a, on a far calmer note. In this place, end of verse 9, I will give peace declares the Lord of hosts. And again, is Lord of hosts, is that a calm, quiet 
kind, comforting title? It's not, right? It's Lord of Heavenly Armies, some translations have. I like, I like the emphasis of that, right? God the Conqueror. It's like, I'm going to bring peace. That's not peace through negotiation, right? There aren't going to be any enemies left, so everything's going to be fine. <laughs> because there aren't going to be any enemies left. Will there be any future enemies? Nope. God's going to put an end to all of that. And what is this peace? That term shalom, uh, I'm, I'm sure we're fami- familiar with as a, as a greeting, hello or goodbye, uh, asking and offering the blessing of the Lord. Peace involves, as one author put this, an, an all-encompassing state of harmony and fruitfulness. Nothing less, excuse me, nothing less than a total restoration of all relationships, including those between man and God, man, man and God, between man and his fellow man, and between man and the created order. When the glory returns to the new temple and God once again dwells in the midst of his people, the result will be nothing short of full salvation, consummation of all promises, redemption of all things. God's promises then motivate us to work for his glory. Look ahead. What I'm going to do, I'm going to shake Right? I'm going to fill this with glory. I'm going to bring this in, and, and, and I'm going to bring peace. And that should fill us with hope. God's promises motivate us to work for his glory. But then as we try to make connections between what they were called to do and those promises and what we're called to do and our promises, we need, to, we need to do a little bit more work. So although that sounded like a conclusion, it wasn't. It was like the sub-conclusion. There's always a comparison that could be made to leave us discouraged in our work. There's always somebody doing a little bit more or a lot more, earlier or longer, more recognized. Always someone, there's always something that could leave us discouraged, right? I'm not Martin Luther. I'm not John Calvin, not Charles Spurgeon. We're not 17th century Geneva. We're not Grace Community Church in California. Inevitably, someone else has a bigger influence than all of you. Inevitably, you know, more kids in their training hour class or more people they're mentoring in the faith or more children in their family or, or more something. But don't let the comparative insignificance or the apparent futility of your work, don't allow that to discourage you. Instead, you look forward with hope to what God will accomplish, After all, in all the examples from history that I've given, who's really responsible for all of those big significant things? We quote Martin Luther, point to Martin Luther, right? Like think about, look at what what he did, right? If you ask Martin Luther, hey, Martin Luther, what did you do? It's a great quote. I wish I'd written it down. This is kind of like, while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer, the word... So it worked that everything was shaken. Loose paraphrase, except for the first part, because that part always sticks. It's so funny. It's like, what did you do, Martin Luther? Man, you were working, you were doing stuff. He's like, no. <laughs> Just wanted to have a little discussion, dragging my tails, kind of kicking and screaming into this argument. And then at the course of that, God is using his word to blow up all of Europe, the repercussions of which still come to us in the modern day, and I don't think will ever come to an end. I'd be like, and that was because of Martin Luther? No, like Luther knew, no, this isn't me, right? I'm just a troubled monk, had a guilty conscience and believed the gospel. Just pointed people to God's word, put it in front of them and God did something about it. And all those other people, Calvin or Edwards or, or, or Eliot or Carmichael or Tyndale or um, uh, Latimer and Ridley or uh, Sproul or MacArthur or Piper, whoever, you know, fill in the blank, like any of those, if they're worth their salt and, and you know, honest proclaimers of the gospel to be like, me? No. This is what God has done. I'm as surprised as you are. God is responsible. God raised up those individuals. God is the one who gifted them. God is the one who placed them in those situations at those particular times, and he's the one who has blessed them so abundantly. Was it not the Lord of hosts who has done all these things? So, so we give ourselves to whatever work God has called us to 
with the gifts that God has given us. And then we leave the results in his hand. So for the Israelites of Haggai's day, their work was clearly stated. Rebuild the temple uh, for God's pleasure, that I may take pleasure in it, that I may be glorified, chapter 1, verse 8. But for us, we're not called to a building project like that. Um, Robbie mentioned, joking to me, that at the end of this, like we should, this series, like we should announce, by the way, we're remodeling our building. <laughs> uh, we're not climaxing with that, okay? It's like give money to the church, right? Do the same work. It's like, no, what a horrible, what a horrible way to use Haggai, God's priorities. I mean, eventually we'll do remodel and you'll need to give to it, but it's not like the pressure of Haggai. That's how we're going right now. So we're not called to a building project like this because God's work in his kingdom building doesn't, doesn't look like those type of things. So, so what, what might our work be? Well, our, our work is, is making disciples of all nations. Our, our work is raising our children to know and love the Lord. Our work is mentoring others in the faith. Our, our work is, is preaching the gospel and teaching God's word to large or small groups, maybe even one-on-one. Now, I think our work is, is planting churches in our region, or going as missionaries to unreached peoples across the nations. Our work is things as simple as serving others to help them and to meet their needs. And whatever else God has called you to, your, your work in which he takes pleasure and brings you glory, it could be your, your employment. Your work is certainly your sanctification, how discouraging it can look at. It's like, look at what, how much God sanctified them and, and then there's me, right? Instead of looking backward, we look at the promises of God to look forward. Yeah, but his work isn't done and it's ongoing. And so we continue to work as God is at work in us. He's with us. So God has called us to our sanctification, to, to our study of the scriptures, to our prayer life, our battles against sin, Perhaps what God has called you to that can be so discouraging as you compare it is, is just enduring sickness or enduring loss or enduring difficult relationships or enduring other types of disappointments in life. God has just put you in the midst of that and we can be discouraged as we compare things. God calls us to look forward because how easy it is to compare ourselves with others or even with ourselves in the past. So easy to compare ourselves, well, look, what, look what God did there. Look what God did there. Look what God's doing over here. And then there's me. Because comparison so often just breeds discouragement. What's happened in the past? What has someone else accomplished? Look at that church. Look at those kids. Look at his job. Look at her knowledge of the scripture. And it could breed jealousy. And sometimes it could just breed discouragement. I'm nothing in the kingdom of God in comparison to X, Y, or Z. I could never be this. I could never do that. We compare and comparison breeds discouragement. When you, give, when you get discouraged enough, you want to give up because discouragement stops work. Comparison breeds discouragement and discouragement, stop, discouragement stops work. We, we, we think, we reason like this. If my efforts won't be successful, what's the point of even trying? Like, why am I even bothering if it's not going to be if nothing's going to be accomplished, just banging my head against a wall. And if I'm never going to be that, then what, what's even the point? I'm not significant, so I'll just give up. I mean, the guy at the, the end of the race, right, the back of the heat, and not, not, like, not like the second place guy, but like the forgot to lace up his shoes and is like three laps behind guy. Like, what's the point? <laughs> what's the point of finishing? By the time I cross the finish line, those guys will already be changed back into their they're street clothes. I'm so far behind. I'm not even, just don't, there's no point. If I'm not, I'm not significant, I'll just give up. And in that discouragement, and as the pace of our work slows, because as we get discouraged, our work slows and sort of putters to a stop, God's word speaks his promise to us again. What are those promises? Promises, you know what? Promises that are filled with, with hope. Promises of like, no, 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 I'm with you. I'm with you. I, I am at work, right? That was, that was the, the aspect of repentance last week. How did that end, right? Trust that God is at work. God is the one stirring up the spirit. Why would he do that if he wasn't going to be accomplishing his purposes? Missed us. So God promises, I'm with you. I'm at work. And I will accomplish all my glorious purposes, God says. Like, I'm not done. 
so you can't be done, right? I'm, I'm working and you need to look forward because there's, there's some big things that I am doing. And you know what? You're a part of that whether you feel like it or not. God is at work. And then when we, when we face off against a discouragement, comparison breeds discouragement, discouragement stops work, but then hope dispels discouragement and renews work. Hope, confident expectation in what God will accomplish, not what we wish, right? It's like, oh, it'll be nice. Maybe our church will be bigger. Maybe a lot of people will know my name. Maybe, maybe all of my kids will be known as this, or maybe I will be recognized at my job. No, it's not, it's not a, a, a hope, a wish, a longing for something to just be better about you, but a confident expectation. God will fulfill his promises to shake the heavens and the earth and all these nations and bring all that glory in. That's hope. It's not just like, oh, maybe something good will happen from this. Right? That's just so weak. Because it's not about this life. If something bad happened, well, you know, something good will happen out of that. Like God closes the door, opens a window. Well, maybe he already nailed the windows shut. Maybe you're going to just die trapped in this room. But you know what? God's promise is still going to be fulfilled because it's bigger than you. There's no promise that everything will work out for you in this life, that you will finally be recognized for your faithfulness and fruitfulness. Eventually, if you do it, it'll all work out for you. No promise of that. But there is a promise that all things will work for God's purposes, right? We need to get our eyes off of us, off of our lives. We need to set them onto God and, and his accomplishments. And then when we have hope, future looking at what God will do, what God has promised that he will do, then discouragement starts to just scatter and we renew work. And the work that you're doing isn't just about you. The work I'm doing isn't just about me. It's about the glory of God. And even if it seems as nothing in your eyes, it is pleasing in his. And we need to form a distinction in our mind, I think, between working and accomplishing we work, but only God accomplishes. Right? What can you accomplish spiritually and of eternal significance in your life or someone else's? What can you accomplish? The answer is really simple. You can't accomplish anything. But you are called to work. I think that that's a difference between faithfulness and fruitfulness. Well, you talked about, you know, joked comparing Isaiah to Haggai. Right, the beginning of Isaiah's message, be like, by the way, Isaiah, you're going to go and nobody's going to listen to you, ever. <laughs> Come again? Right, yeah. Fruit count? Nothing. Haggai. One message, everybody repents, right? Who is God with and who did God speak through? Answer, of course, is both faithful to the task that God had given them. If anything of unshakable unshakable, eternal significance is going to take place in our lives, in our church, in our state, in our world. God must accomplish it. And so there's the distinction between faithfulness to a task and fruitfulness from that task. And what have you been called to when it comes to the success of things, right? Yeah, there's, there's fruit in your life, okay? I'm not talking about the love and joy and peace and sanctifying change. I'm talking about like how many people have you been called to make sure that they are saved and grow into the image of Christ? So that there aren't numbers given of that. Was the difference between 30-fold or 60-fold or 100-fold? Is that really based off of like how good of a job you do? No, it's up to the sovereignty of God. So you are called to faithfulness, required among stewards, whatever translation I'm quoting, that, that man be found faithful, you were faithful with a few things. I will reward you with many things. God calls us to faithfulness to that work. Maybe God will use you or God will use us for really big, significant things in his kingdom. And everybody will know that it's pronounced hurricane and not hurricane. Maybe. Maybe he won't. Maybe it'll just be us. Faithfully seeking to pursue God and advance his kingdom. And we'll all pass off the scene. Either way, God's future promise to shake all things and bring himself glory will certainly take place. God is calling us to be strong and to work in his kingdom. 
for his glory. In our own lives and the lives of the people around us or whatever that sphere of influence might be that we have. And he has flooded us with promises to strengthen us and to fill us with hope as we work. I want to conclude with these words from from the book of Hebrews calling us to these things. It's the only New Testament quotation from uh, the book of Haggai in Hebrews chapter 12. He's referencing God's shaking the area around Mount Sinai in the context of this. The author of Hebrews writes this, At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. And this phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us receive, sorry, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Our Lord, our God, the Lord of hosts, we, we praise you for your promises. Fill us with hope to cling to those things May our motivation to work not be that that we will be known, that our efforts will be recognized, that people will know our name. May we not live for the praise of men, but may we live for the glory and praise of you, our God. And may we be reminded as we're discouraged on a a daily basis, perhaps, uh, even in our struggle against big or small things, and our own struggles always seem big. Would you help us to lift our eyes to the fulfillment of your future promises, that which awaits us? Um, Thank you that Christ will accomplish all these things. Amen.